This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. You are not in control. You never have been. And you never will be. That fact of life is tough for many of us to swallow. I quote, The cultural air I breathe has trained me to think that life should be more carefree, predictable, and in control than it is. End quote. Says Scott Sauls in his new book, Beautiful People Don't Just Happen. How God Redeems Regret, Hurt, and Fear in the Making of Better Humans. A book published by Zondervan. Scott Sauls is senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and author of six books. Scott writes with a kind of vulnerability that is not common, I find, at least, for many authors, let alone pastors, let alone pastors in such large and influential congregations. He tells us that we can find him in the church basement with the marginal characters Jesus seemed to attract. Scott admits, quote, he wounds us sometimes, but always and only to heal us, end quote. Just look around the room sometime. When your church sings, it is well. You'll notice that it's those who suffered the most who sing the loudest. They have forsaken their need to control for the peace of faith. Now, Scott joins me now on Gospel Bound to share what church members would be surprised to learn about their pastors, why deep faith feels like defeat, and how affliction can preach better than a sermon. Scott, thanks for joining me on Gospel Bound. Thanks, Colin. What a great summary. Uh, right. I thought your words sounded familiar when you first started <laughs> saying them and realized, mm. wait, you're reading a, my words. <laughs> a very intelligent man has said this before. <laughs> well, I'm the guy who, you know, if you asked me on Wednesday what I preached last Sunday, I couldn't tell you. So um, we trust so, yeah. the Holy Spirit to drive that application for yeah. us. Well, Scott, who did you have in mind when you were writing this book? Well, you know, it was written right in the middle of the pandemic was when, when I started it. And, you know, the, the, the dedication of the book, I think, answers the question. It, it really is for, uh, number one, uh, people who sin, uh, people who suffer, and people who are afraid. That's number one. And group number two is those who have been called to show up for uh, those people, uh, whether it be pastors or counselors or social workers or some other helping profession or just friends who uh, who show up for friends uh, or um, parents who show up for their kids, et cetera. And, you know, it's really a book about three pain points. You know, some have called it a book about suffering, but it's, it's really more than that. I think uh, it's a lot about guilt and shame and how the gospel uh, addresses uh, those those pain points, uh, as well as just the general hurt and specific hurt that comes from living in a fallen world and 
and the fear that we all carry because of how unstable uh, and unfinished uh, the world is and we are. And so um, so it's really a, a call or at least a, a desire to put out a clarion call to hope and, and maybe to put a, a $16 counselor in your hand. And I look forward to the day when Amazon does that 99 cent Kindle special that they always seem to do because I I'm not in it for for royalties or anything like that. I just I just hope it'll help. I hope it'll help serve as a, a pastoral resource for people. Well, you may not be in it for royalties, but you have produced a lot of books in a short period of time. These six mm-hmm. books. Would you say there's an any particular overarching theme to this uh, to your corpus? Uh, to the whole collection, mm-hmm. um, you know, I. I I I think probably from my first few, uh, and really my my the one my fifth one the one before this one the, the theme has been navigating uh, a polarized culture and um, and apologetics sort of third way apologetics uh, which you know your mentor and mine Tim <laughs> Keller uh, uh, his fingerprints are all over you know anything yeah. that I've thought or written on those things um, but I think uh, yeah my my first two and and uh, fourth. I'm sorry, my first two and my fifth book are, are around those themes of, of, you know, how do we, how do we cultivate the culture of our hearts and, and also, uh, you know, our, how we conduct our lives in, in a climate like the one we find ourselves in politically and socially and, and otherwise, and also inside the life of the church. Um, and then ones on leadership, uh, which I think resonates with this one. Um, it's kind of the, the woundedness of, of life, uh, the pain points of life, uh, but, one of those books is applied to leadership, but this, this particular latest one is is more oriented toward general, you know, kind of an everyone target group. Well, speaking, speaking of that leadership dimension of this, you, what do you think church members might be surprised most to learn about their pastors? Uh, there's a line in here that stood out to me when you said that pastors and addicts are more mm. like than different. That deserves a little explanation, I think. Well, um, I think that, uh, I think that probably the, the shortest version of the answer to that, uh, would be that we, um, we are sheep before we are shepherds, uh, that we just like, uh, the members of our churches are not the Christ. Uh, we do not have saving capacity. Uh, we do not have healing powers uh, it, unless the Lord gives us those powers or entrusts them to us in, in different ways. But, um, you know, my summary of what it's like, at least for me to be a pastor, uh, is captured in a paragraph that I'd be happy to read to you if you yeah, want. It's, it's pretty it. short. Um, this is in, uh, I, I don't know what page it's on, but uh, it says, like anyone else, we pastors believe and we doubt. We listen patiently and we lose our tempers. We give selflessly and we act selfishly. We preach and we gossip. We pray and we sometimes cuss. We can be kind and hurtful, hopeful and cynical, tender and abrasive, loving and hateful, courageous and cowardly, faithful and frail, hardworking and lazy. Even at our best, we are a duplicitous bunch. As one pastor remarked to his sharpest critics, thank you for saying only that about me. Let me tell you, you don't know the half of it. I think that's what it's like to be a pastor in my skin, uh, at least. I can't speak for all pastors. Yeah. Well, and maybe this relates to another line that stood out to me, but I'd love to know more of what you mean here. I imagine it could be misinterpreted. I'd love to hear your context behind it. You say this, quote, Sometimes the deepest, truest faith feels more like defeat than it does victory. 
What do you mean? I think the answer lies, uh, Colin, to that question in in how the scriptures were delivered to us and where they came from. Uh, the earliest uh, books of the scripture were were written if we if we assume mosaic authorship they were written in the context of slavery uh and in the context of of the desert uh, and wandering in the wilderness uh and then we we fast forward to um the the later books in the old testament and we we get material that's delivered to us by people who are in exile uh having been taken captive by uh, hostile uh, foreign governments uh, like Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon and Tiglath-Pileser's Assyria. Uh, we find David running from King Saul, hiding in caves where he births some of the greatest psalms and also running from his own son Absalom uh, while birthing some of the, the greatest, uh, most magnificent psalms. We fast forward to the New Testament. It's written in the context of um, uh, you know, Nero's persecution, uh, much of it, and, and just the, the general per- climate of persecution toward people of faith who declare Jesus as Lord instead of Caesar as Lord. And so bottom line, uh, the, the scriptures uh, as a whole are given to us from a context of distress and a context of, of, of being behind, not ahead uh, in life and in the world and in the context of guilt and shame and hurt and, and, and fear. And, and, um, you know, even Christ, you know, crying out on the cross gives us a picture of how the truth of God has all been delivered to us about the, just the feelings of forsakenness. But I think the answer to the question lies in what Paul uh, reflected on uh, in light of his thorn in the flesh. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's when the power of God rests on me. That's why I have come to delight in weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and difficulty for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Or Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings. Uh, which produce perseverance, character, hope, which does not disappoint. And so uh, the scriptures are pretty loud um, about faith uh, being uh, on the ground at the hem of Jesus's garment rather than, you know, on the mountaintops of triumph. Um, and there's, a, in, in fact, humility is the greatest triumph in, in the life of a believer and being brought low is the greatest triumph that, that we can experience. You have a a preacher's knack for these arresting statements, and I have a journalist's knack for wondering about them, (laughs) 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 poking them in some ways. Um, (laughs) And you write this, the thing God wants most from you is an admission of your not-enoughness. Would love to know what you you mean by that. It did make me wonder. Not our holiness, not our worship, not our love for him and our neighbors, the mm-hmm. two greatest commandments. Just tell us a little bit more what you mean. What comes to mind is Isaiah's uh, crisis in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, where um, he sees the Lord and is he finds himself um, at the train of the Lord's robe, which you know the Hebrew translation of that could also be translated the hem. Um, you know, speaking of the hem of God's garment, uh, it's there in the New Testament as well as the Old. Uh, and it's at the hem of God's garment in the temple that he beholds the glory of God and falls apart. And the thing that he calls curses it down on is not his ears or his feet or his biceps or, you know, his his body type. He calls curses down on his lips, which is the, the, the greatest part about Isaiah. He's a prophet. We know what kind of wordsmith he was. Uh, we know how poetic he was. Um, you know, we have the retrospect now of, of, you know, entire symphonies like Handel's Messiah being built around his prophecy 
Uh, we have the retrospect of him being the most quoted prophet in all of the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah never saw any of the fruit of that in his lifetime. Uh, the moment he he said yes to God's call before God gave him the job description, and then right after he said yes to the job description he didn't have, he got the job description, your congregation is going to be reduced by 90% on day one, though a tenth remain. Uh, and and that was his life. And, and, um, and so, you know, there's this arresting quote, speaking of arresting quotes that I borrowed from a pastor in Chattanooga named Joe Novenson. Uh, where he says that the defining feeling of faith is not strength, but dependent weakness. Uh, we're to enter the kingdom like a child. Uh, you know, Jesus said the children are our greatest preachers. Uh, they are the greatest messengers and embodiment of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And children are needy. They're messy. Uh, they're impulsive and impetuous um, and selfish and all all the rest. Um, but ultimately, they're dependent uh, and they know it. And and so, uh, however we can get in on that, um, I think we'll be the better for it. So, this is going to be an, an awkward transition because my next question was about Isaiah, mm. but you notice similarities between Nietzsche and Isaiah. That requires some explanation then in light of what you just said in there. I, I did compare him to Ecclesiastes. You know, Ecclesiastes resonates with the existentialist philosophers. Okay. Uh, there's a section about Nietzsche and music, and then there's a section, okay, it might be this one. It's not just our worst deeds, but even our righteous deeds that are problematic in God's sight. If Isaiah had been born at a much later time, one might wonder if he had been reading the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche, who argued that even our best deeds have self-centered motives behind them. According to Nietzsche, we do good not for the sake of the good it's good itself, but for the sake of being noticed and applauded and of gaining more power. Our best virtues, Nietzsche said, are less about serving others and more about securing a reward for ourselves. It's a cynical view, to be sure, but it's also hard to argue against. As one theologian is similarly quoted as saying, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. And that's John. John Gerstner. I, I, I think, though, it's also important to recognize that um, that Isaiah, in, in recognizing himself to be unholy, uh, is at the peak of his holiness. And if, if we track if we track the life and self awareness of the Apostle Paul, even in his writings, the Apostle Paul begins referring to himself as an apostle, and then later on he refers himself to himself as the least of the apostles, and then later the least of all the saints. And at the very end, at the height of his personal, personal holiness, godliness, and virtue, and sanctification, he refers to himself as the chief of sinners. Uh, and so there's there's this strange juxtaposition, and but it, but it's so real and so discernible in Scripture, and and maybe even in our own lives, that the more holy we get, uh, the more like Christ we get, the less like Christ we feel, uh, which is an occasion to drive us into a place of humility, of introspection, of self-examination, of constantly inviting God to search us and know our hearts. Um, you know, I preached on the imprecatory Psalms last Sunday, and one of the things that I said to the congregation is um, we, we need to be very, very careful about uh, praying imprecatory psalms against other people's faults and sins, unless we're not first willing to pray those same psalms against our own faults and sins, uh, just to keep Jesus's teaching about logs and specks in their proper order. Um, but I think the older uh, and more mature we get in the faith, um, 
you know, the, the biggest sinner in the world is us. And that awareness actually becomes strangely a contributor to the growth of virtue in our lives. I see that in Tim, uh, as I'm sure you do. Um, you know, those few of us who've had the privilege of knowing him personally and watching him behind the scenes. Um, he's, he's one of those mega church pastors whose character did not get tarnished um, by big platform and ego, but, but, you know, he had this self-awareness to lean even deep, more deeply into um, pursuing gospel virtue and, and humility, and, and, and his private life reflects that. And uh, throughout the book, another one of Tim's themes that I think people would, would pick up on is that if our churches are not attracting the kind of people who Jesus attracted in his ministry, we must not be preaching the same message. Probably my favorite chapter of your book was The Church Basement. Um, I think uh, for other people who've grown up in different kind of churches, I grew up in the United Methodist Church, you say church basement, immediately I can smell, you know, I can smell that church basement. <laughs> I just love you know, it, it, tell us why you think we need more church basements. Well, it, you know, it's, it's a it's a little, it's kind of a cheeky way of, uh, 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 it's sort of a cheeky entry point into the fact that oftentimes when recovery groups meet in church buildings, uh, they meet in the church basement. And there's a whole lot of honesty and transparency and self-disclosure uh, that goes on uh, in those recovery meetings that actually contributes to people's feeling uh, feelings of safety and belonging in ways that oftentimes in church sanctuaries uh, make things like safety and belonging feel threatened. Um, you know, if, if I'm truly known, if I, if I don't put on my Sunday best and bring my, you know, bring my highlight reel, you know, into the sanctuary, uh, I might be rejected. I might not be included. I might be placed on the outside. Whereas, you know, in the church basement, it, look, it, there's just too much at stake, not to be honest about what you're going through and, and what your needs are for a community around you. And so, so that chapter is, is really just about bringing, um, you know, bringing addict, you know, recovering addict dynamics into the sanctuary because we're all recovering addicts. I mean, we're, we're addicted to idolatry. Uh, we're addicted to, we're addicted to ambition or, or to money or to, uh, to our um, our pride or or to uh, any number of things and and um, I don't know it I guess substance addiction or the kind of addiction that that has the power to blow up a marriage you just you know you're willing to be exposed in the basement in ways that maybe we're not willing to be exposed in the sanctuary for more acceptable sins I guess I would say maybe Scott this is related then what would revival look like at your church. You know what, uh, Colin? I, I think there's always a lot of it going on um, because, you know, um, we've we've got a lot of those people who are telling their stories and and stewarding those stories to bring encouragement and hope into the lives of other people. Um, I wish there were a greater ratio uh, of us uh, who were uh, willing and eager to bring our stories to the forefront. But one thing I discover, especially when, um, you know, parents lose a child, a child dies. And, you know, we go through the the grieving and burying process with the family or when somebody gets a terminal diagnosis, um, we, f we, we suddenly discover that these quiet people who don't put themselves forward, uh, who mostly keep to themselves and, and just live lives of quiet faithfulness with a small, you know, community of friends around them along the way. Um, 
everything that they have been nourishing their souls with for years and years, sometimes decades, by, you know, essentially being fully at the fully present with a local church every single Sunday and fully present with Christ and scripture every day and, you know, cultivating a life of faith and obedience in a quiet place, suddenly everything comes home, uh, you know, in that moment of, of crisis, which becomes a moment of clarity about, about what really matters and about who really matters and about where the source is of, of our healing and hope. Um, the people that sing it as well with my soul, the loudest in our church are, are the sufferers. They're the ones who've, you know, known defeat and disappointment and deep gut-wrenching sorrow. They, they're, they're the ones who aren't ashamed to lift their hands and they don't care if they're singing off key and it bothers you. They, they just throw everything <laughs> that they've got into it. And, and so it's there. And I, you know, I would encourage people who think they're in a dead church or, or a, or just a, you know, a church that's not alive. I, I guarantee you, your church is a lot more alive than you think it is. Um, remember God doesn't, doesn't judge by outward appearance, but by the heart. And you never know uh, how deep the faith is of the quiet person next to you. Um, I love that. I love that. And sometimes, it... sometimes our charisma is a mask for a lack of faith. Uh, quite honestly, yeah. and our our unwillingness to sing psalms of lament, and and our unwillingness to express distress and sadness, and constant, you know, emphasis on triumph and celebration and nothing else, might actually be an indicator that that we're trying to mask a faith that's not actually there uh, to the depths that we would wish it was. And talk so, our, yeah, talk ourselves into it. Maybe. Yeah. Um, is it hard for you, Scott, to put so much of yourself in your books? I mean, that's definitely one of the, the hallmarks of your writing. Is it any different in a book compared to your sermons? Mm -hmm. No, I think I have a similar voice. Um, one thing I discovered, though, when writing a book, writing my first book is – it's not the same process as writing a sermon. You know, I can, I, my <laughs> no. sermon writing, God just given me the ability. Maybe it was because we were church planters for so many years and had so many things to do. Um, and time was short, but I, I, I write, um, you know, my best sermons take me about three or four hours to write total oh, research okay. to final product. Um, but writing a chapter is, is, is like, you know, excavating a, you know, a concrete uh, wilderness, you know, to, to start building. So it just, it goes so much slower. Um, it, it's, it's becoming more natural, but it, it really is for me, like pitching left-handed. I don't like writing as much as I like having written, uh, if that makes okay. sense. Um, uh, Cause it's a, it's a labor uh, for me, but I, I feel like, you know, it's not something I asked for. It's not something I pursued. It just kind of, fell in my lap and and I feel like at least until the Lord gives gives me a sense or the people around me a sense that I, I need to stop, I probably need to continue. Um so oh. that's that's behind the curtain there. But there, there are other things I love to do more. Um, okay. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> is it um is it possible for pastors to be too vulnerable? Yes. Tell me more. Um we, we should only be vulnerable to the degree that our vulnerability becomes a bridge to amplify Jesus Christ and not to amplify our vulnerabilities. Um, you know, the pastor that bleeds on his people uh, or the pastor that turns, you know, a small group or a worship service or an elder meeting into a group therapy session for himself uh, is probably not in a healthy place and, and not in a beneficial place for the body of Christ. And so, it's important to be circumspect about motivations, uh, about, um, you know, the value uh, and frequency of, of self-disclosure as opposed to, 
because it can become distracting. It, it can become the centerpiece of your, you can become the centerpiece of your own ministry, um, you know, an unintended narcissist even um, if, if everything points back to you and your story. Um, and, and so it's just something to be careful with and have, you know, trusted people around you who will speak in and uh, let you know how your ministry is being received and heard. Yeah. Well, part of why I'm asking the question is because you, 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 you strike a very good balance, but it is so easy. I've seen in many different times for people to fall off that. And, and not every pastor, I don't think has the personality that lends itself very well to, you know, vulnerability in the same ways. Um, and so, um, I, I can see that sometimes people will get really excited about a pastor because he's so real, authentic, raw, vulnerable, and that can be great, but it doesn't necessarily mean the other guy has to be the same way. That's right. Or even that the vulnerability is always a good thing. That's right. Um, because it can mm-hmm. be very easily manipulative um, in, or mm-hmm. and even, even abusive uh, at yeah. times. Um, yeah. Which then leads me to my, my last question, which was, what led you to conclude that your afflictions might have a greater impact than your preaching or vision? Yeah, I, I'll go back again to just a robust theology of, of weakness um, in the scriptures, that, that, that weakness is the, the vehicle through which God chooses to amplify his glory and his grace and his power uh, and his, you know, saving condescending kindness um, more than any other vehicle uh, from the beginning of history to uh, what will one day be the end of time. Weakness is is the conduit. It's the avenue. Um, there's no bypass road around it. And uh, our Lord Jesus um, was exhibit A for that. Uh, he lived a life that was filled with humiliation and died a death that was filled with humili- humiliation and rejection and pain and alienation. And you know, if the greatest act in the history of the world, um, you know, right alongside the resurrection, um, also the greatest act um, is is the means by which God has chosen to save the world, uh, then we can't dismiss weakness from, from the landscape of our own ministry and influence. And the other is just anecdotal that, um, I, you know, I don't talk about a lot about my own anxiety and depression and how that plays into my story. I've actually written on the Gospel Coalition for yeah. that. Mm-hmm. I think the essay is still out there. Yeah. Um, Definitely. But whenever I've done that, um, I'll just share one anecdote. There's this guy in the church that I thought didn't like me. Mm. Uh, and I was wondering, like, what's up with that? You, you know, we preachers, we read people's body language. <laughs> sometimes true. we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. We see him walking out. Yeah, but this guy was like <laughs> folding his shoulders. Mm-hmm. kind of leaning back, like cocking his head a little bit like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure I'm going to trust you. And yeah. that went on for like two years. And then after about two years, this was here at Christ Presbyterian in Nashville. After I was here for about two years, it, it fit with the text for me to share a bit about my own journey with anxiety and depression. And he comes barreling toward me mm-hmm. after the service. And I thought, oh, no, is he going to punch me or, <laughs> or is he going to, uh, you know, kindly telling me he's going to start a petition to have me removed from the church? What's he mm-hmm. doing? And and he just, he grabs my shoulders. He's got this intense look on his face. He says, you know what? I, th- I think you're a really gifted communicator and I'm entirely unimpressed by that. Um, he said, I want you to know that today is the day that that you became my pastor um, after sitting under your teaching for two years, because uh, today is the day that I discovered that you and I are a lot more alike than we are different. And I thought, wow, okay. Um, uh, and I've had a lot of 
you know, conversations about, you know, like that uh, from things I've written or things that I've said publicly. Um, but again, you've always got to self-examine and make sure the motives are right and make sure the occasion is right, um, you know, in order to put put it out there. That yeah. makes sense. It does. I've got a final three here with Scott Souls. Talking with him about beautiful people don't just happen. How God redeems regret, hurt, and fear in the making of better humans. From Zondervan. All right, final three, Scott. Where do you find calm in the storm? The Psalms and my wife. Okay, good ones. Uh, where do you find good news today? Ah, good news today uh, is that, um, gosh, there's a lot of good news. Um, I have been told today by three people that they love me uh, and they are representative of, of, of others who uh, make a point of saying similar things. That's great. Amazing what you find when you go looking for it. It's one of our Mm -hmm. themes here on Mm -hmm. gospel bound. Mm -hmm. Keep, uh, keep looking until we see God working. And uh, finally, what's the last great book you've read? Um, can I talk about the great book that I'm reading right now? <laughs> yeah, that, that actually is usually where people go with this question. <laughs> uh, it's a novel written by uh, a presumed child refugee called uh, All Sad Things Come Untrue. Uh, okay. It is breathtakingly beautiful. Uh, okay. Highly recommend. Well, uh, by the time people listen to this, they will have heard our interview with Daniel mm. about that book. Ah, Amazing. wonderful. So... Um, very, very, very good stuff there. Mm-hmm. So, all right, well, check out Scott Saul's new book, Beautiful People Don't Just Happen, How God Redeems Regret, Hurt, and Fear in the Making of Better Humans. And from Zonovan. Scott, thanks. Thank you, Colin. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope. Thank you.